0: Good morning. My name is Josh. I'm the teaching minister here. If you're a guest or if you're joining us in the cafe or online, we are so glad that you're here joining us as we celebrate Jesus. And as we are walking verse by verse through the gospel according to Mark. Mark is one of four men who wrote down the earliest accounts of the life of Jesus, specifically the three years of his ministry from the moment he was baptized all the way up into his death and resurrection, and then ascension into heaven. And so we've been walking through it, and we come today to a touchy topic. But before we get there, I want us as one body, as one church, to read a verse or two together out loud. These are very familiar words from Paul in Ephesians chapter, let's go and put these up, excuse me, in 2 Timothy chapter 3, and I want us to read this out. Hey, by the way, how's your, how's your speaking voice this morning? Is it Okay. Need some me, me, me's or you, you, use before we do this? All right, all together, let's say these words out loud together. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. All Scripture. Not just the one that you have on your coffee cup. Not just the one that is embroidered on a pillow. All Scripture is God-breathed. And here's what I want you to know. All Scripture being God-breathed is good for us. And that's why we are going to read and study even touchy topics. But I want to start this morning by talking about stories. And how the stories we love the best, the kind of stories that maybe you grew up with, that I grew up with, they almost all begin with these words, once upon a time. See, you've heard those too, haven't you? And then the story that begins once upon a time almost always ends and they got married and they lived happily And then Disney credits roll and everyone goes, wow, that was $9 to go see that. And that is what we grew up with. That the stories that we love, they begin with once upon a time and happily ever after. But in between, there's this moment where they meet, they fall in love, they get into trouble, she eats the fruit she wasn't supposed to, the carriage turns into a pumpkin, she pricks her finger on a spinning wheel, and she sleeps for a hundred years, and things get really bad and really dark. But things almost always have a way of working out in these stories, don't they? Something happens, and Snow White eventually marries Prince Charming, and Cinderella marries Prince Charming, and Sleeping Beauty marries Prince Charming. Apparently, there were no laws against bigamy back in the old days. And so they marry this guy, and I always wonder, why is it a happily ever after for the wife if Prince Charming is constantly marrying new women every other week? I thought it was funny. Apparently, I'm the only one. But here's the reality. There's something inside all of us that likes a happy ending, isn't there? In fact, if you ask playwrights, novelists, movie folk, if you ask them, they will tell you that things sell much better if it has a happy ending. I say that this morning by way of contrast because we do not live in a happily ever after world, do we? Everything doesn't always work out in the here and now. In fact, this world is marked by things that don't work. A big idea that you can trace throughout Scripture is captured in a phrase that I heard many years ago, and I wish I could remember from whom. But here's the phrase that I want us to sort of think about as, as a, a way of viewing the text this morning. And go ahead and put this phrase up on screen. This is the idea That Christians hold on to God's ideal even when living in the real. That you and I, people who follow Jesus, we live and we hold on to God's ideal, the way he wants it, the way he designed it, the way he planned for it, even while we're living in a world that is really broken and messed up. And so I want to begin this lesson on marriage, divorce, and remarriage with a couple of very important statements. First, this is a touchy topic. This is a topic that has touched everyone in this room at some point or in some way. It has touched my family in some very deep and personal ways. And I'm sure many in this room could say the same. So I just want to say, if you are nervous about what is about to take place, here's what I want you to do. Are you ready? Just take a deep breath. Can you do that? In fact, let's just all together do this. Just take, just take a moment. Ready? Just deep breath in. Deep breath out. One more time. And out. And twist. And okay, I mean, just, just take a breath, okay? Because here's what I want you to know. Sometimes we treat the topic of divorce, sometimes we wrongly treat the topic of divorce as the unpardonable sin. Church, you need to know this is not the unpardonable sin. There is life There is grace, there is mercy after divorce. So take a breath, we're going to simply soak in what Jesus says, and I pray, find life. Now the second thing I want to make sure I say this morning is that divorce and remarriage is a complex topic on which good, godly Christ followers disagree. In fact, this morning, you may disagree with some of the conclusions that I present, and that is okay, you need to know, that is okay. What I'm going to do, and the only thing I am responsible for, is presenting the Word of God as clearly and correctly as I know how. So that's what I'm going to try to do this morning. But I will say this, I could be wrong. So I invite you to study it and to go back to the Scriptures yourself. We're going to cover a lot of ground this morning, and we will go a little longer than usual, fair warning. But here's why. I don't want to leave unanswered questions to some of the big blocks. You will still have more questions, and you're welcome to visit with me. We'll grab a cup of coffee and talk. But I want to hit some of the big blocks. So here's what we're going to do over the next uh, number of minutes, just give you sort of a roadmap. We're going to look at a passage in the New Testament where Jesus is asked a question by some religious leaders. We're going to pause and go back into the Old Testament to see why those religious leaders asked that question. What was sort of the background to it? There will be some key words we'll want to pay a special attention to because they will help frame our understanding, and then we'll come back to Jesus' words on the topic, and for those of you who are nervous, we will end with good news. So if at any point you're going, is this good news? If it doesn't feel like good news, we're not done yet, okay? Because we're going to end with the good news. Is that okay for everyone? Yes? No? Or just go back to sleep? Whichever one, you pick, okay? So... We're looking at this topic because this is part of Mark's teaching from what Jesus said. This is from Mark chapter 10. Now, here's the thing. There is another gospel writer named Matthew who addresses this exact same content, but he includes some very important details that Mark just does not include. Because our time is tight, we will not look at Mark's account this morning. Rather, we'll go to the more expanded teaching in Matthew so we don't miss any of the key things. But this week, go back and read Mark's account from Mark chapter 10 if you wish. There are the similar, there's a lot there. You just will want to see sort of where we're coming from. Matthew helps us with that. So, I want to begin with Matthew chapter 19, and if you notice me looking down a lot this morning, it's because I don't want to miscommunicate something so tender as this topic. So I'm going to stick with my notes quite a bit today. But let's look together. This is Matthew chapter 19, the first nine verses. It begins this way. When Jesus had finished saying these things, now we're going to come back to that little phrase, these things near the end, because I want you to hear what's going on there. When Jesus had finished saying these things, he left Galilee and went into the region of Judea to the other side of the Jordan. Large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. Some Pharisees, verse 3, came to him to, notice this, test him. They asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for, and here's the key, key phrase, for any And every reason. Jesus replied, Haven't you read that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female, and said, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh? So they are no longer two, but they have become one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let man not separate. Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness and marries another woman commits adultery. Now, this encounter shows us God's ideal that Jesus really hones in on. God's ideal, by the way, church, is very clearly one man, one woman in a monogamous, heterosexual marriage for life. That is God's ideal. But he gives that answer in response to the real reality that some marriages do not last, there are broken marriages. And here's what happens. A group of Pharisees, they're simply the law givers, the ones who uh, interpret and teach on what the Old Testament law says, they came and asked Jesus this question. Can a man, notice this, put this on screen, can a man divorce his wife for any and every reason? This is the big question that they are asking. Now, notice they don't ask Jesus if it is ever okay for a man to divorce his wife. Because the Old Testament already gives at least three grounds for divorce. So they don't say, is it lawful for any reason? But rather, can we do it for every reason? Now, before we get to the Old Testament, I know that some in this room are probably going to go, you know, Old Testament, that's fine, but we're a New Testament church. What the New Testament says, that matters for us. Old Testament, not as much. Well, many Christ followers don't know this, But did you know that the New Testament gives at least one more grounds for divorce other than for adultery? Most Christians don't know this. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, the Apostle Paul is answering questions the church in Corinth had about marriage. And in verse 15, he says, "...but if the unbeliever leaves, let him do so. A believing man or woman is not bound in such circumstances, for God has called us to live in peace." In other words, Paul says to the Christians married to unbelievers, if your unbelieving spouse abandons you, you are free to divorce. What's interesting now is that Paul, when asked the question about divorce, do you notice that he does not include Jesus' words about divorce for adultery? Now, quick question, church. Paul says abandonment, yes, but he doesn't mention adultery. Does that therefore mean, since Paul doesn't quote Jesus' reason as well, that Paul is wrong with what he says? No. All Scripture is God-breathed. And then you go to Jesus. Well, Jesus doesn't quote Paul's words, but only adultery. Does that mean that Jesus is wrong? And the whole church said what? No. All Scripture is God-breathed. So what we have to realize is both in the case of Paul and in the case of Jesus, Jesus was not being asked for a comprehensive list of all the things that might lead to a lawful divorce. Rather, Jesus is being asked a technical question. This is really important. He is being asked a specific question about a specific technical law from a specific passage of the Old Testament and Jesus gives a specific technical answer to their question. Jesus does not give a comprehensive thesis on marriage, divorce, and remarriage, nor does Paul. Some of you are going, I don't understand. Okay, let me give you a quick example here. For example, let's say someone in our culture today comes to you and says, hey, is it okay for a 16-year-old to drink? Now, Since you're a part of this culture, you know they're not asking you the question, is it okay for a 16-year-old to drink any fluid such as water, juice, or milk, right? That's not what they're asking, are they? They are asking you, is it lawful for a 16-year-old to consume alcohol? And they're asking you the question based on a specific American law about a specific way of behavior about the legal drinking age. As a member of our culture, you know this, but someone from outside our culture might need it explained to them if someone simply said, is it lawful or okay for a 16-year-old to drink? That's what's going on here. We too need some of these details explained to us. Are you tracking so far? Does this make sense? So here's what Jesus is going to do. He's going to now give a specific answer from Deuteronomy, chapter 24. That's the question. That's where they're getting this question from. So now let's pause in the New Testament and go back to the Old Testament. And I want to look at what the rabbis, the teachers, in Jesus' day taught about divorce and then see what else Jesus said. In the Old Testament, there were two passages, two key texts that informed Jewish thought on divorce and remarriage. One was Deuteronomy chapter 24. That's the passage the Pharisees are specifically referencing in this question to Jesus. And here's what it says. Let's put this up on screen. Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4. If a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something, here's the key word, are you ready? Indecent about her. And he writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her and sends her from his house... And if after she leaves his house, she becomes the wife of another man and her second husband dislikes her and writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her and sends her from his house, or if he dies, notice this, then her first husband who divorced her is not allowed to remarry her again. Now, they are asking Jesus a specific question about this specific law. Now, the key word indecent in Hebrew, if you want to jot this down in your notes, the word indecent in Hebrew literally means a cause of sexual immorality, a cause of sexual immorality. So that was one ground for divorce and permission to remarry. The husband was required to give his divorced wife a certificate of divorce, sort of a proof that she is divorced, and it was a means of protecting the woman. It meant that in Jewish society, unlike the rest of the world, here, this is so crazy, listen to this. In Jewish society, you had to give your wife the certificate of divorce as a means of proving she was no longer married to you because in all other ancient cultures, husbands would not give certificates of divorce. In fact, in some cultures, for a man to divorce his wife, all he would have to say is, I divorce you, I divorce you, I divorce you. Take the kids and leave. That's it. And then what would happen is since she did not have proof that she was divorced, if a second man came and married her, the first husband could come back at a later date and say, no, 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 she's still really my wife and take her back. Therefore, what man would ever want to marry a woman whose first husband could come and take her at any time? This put women in an incredibly vulnerable position. And so God said, if you're going to do this, you protect the vulnerable person. You give a certificate, a proof that they are divorced. Because divorce in the ancient world was always for the purpose of remarriage. Otherwise, a wife would be forced into starvation or possibly prostitution to provide for herself and her children. Now, what about other cases of divorce? Divorce in the ancient world, such as abuse or abandonment. Well, those cases were covered in the Old Testament as well through a roundabout way in a passage from the book of Exodus. This is Exodus chapter 21. Exodus 21, this law covers what would happen if the man takes a second wife, which often happened in the ancient world. Now, this passage is designed, again, to protect the rights of the first woman, the vulnerable party. And make sure that she is still taken care of, even with a second wife. Now notice what it says. If he, this man, this husband, marries another woman, like a second wife, which I'm not sure why he would do that, but that's another story. He must not deprive the first wife her, notice this, food, clothing, and marital rights, translated hubba hubba, okay? Okay? If he does not provide her with these three things, she is free to go without any payment of money. This is just another way of saying, and that's a technical term, saying she is free to get a divorce, a legal document saying he has broken his vows with me. He is not providing food. I am hungry. He is not protecting me, providing clothing so I'm cold. And he is not giving me children. He is not being relational with me. That free to go phrase right here is the technical term for those of you who want to take notes. Now, rabbis would debate what constituted breaking these vows. For instance, how much food is enough food before she could say you're not fulfilling your vow? What kind of clothes? Does it have to come from Walmart or does it have to come from Saks Fifth Avenue? What do these clothes have to look like? And in fact, did you know this? This is so crazy the rabbis actually debated how often a husband must provide conjugal love to his wife. Okay, guys, listen. Ladies, you don't have to listen, but men. According to rabbis, husbands must offer conjugal love to their wives at least two times a week, or she could file for divorce. And if you were a donkey rider... You had to offer one time a week. A donkey rider would be like a trucker who's on the road a lot, okay? I'm not making this up. And then, let's say that you're unemployed. You don't have a job. If you don't have a job, get this, men. According to the rabbis, you had to offer to be intimate with your wife every day of the week. Or she could file for divorce. Now, how many of you are ready to go put in your two weeks notice tomorrow morning you just say to your wife, hey, baby, I just want to be biblical, right? (laughs) So they debated this. What does it mean to fulfill these vows? Because if these are broken, if these vows are broken, then according to God himself, divorce is a possibility. So let's put a chart up here real quick. There are three vows in the Old Testament... From these two passages, the first is fidelity. Fidelity simply means no sexual unfaithfulness. The second is provision. And the third is love. That means sexual intimacy and affection. Now, did so for instance, this could be broken though if any of these were, or this it could be ended if any of these were broken. So for instance, if a man were sexually unfaithful to his wife, next slide, then fidelity, one more slide, fidelity would have been broken, and that would be cause for divorce. Now, a question that rabbis ask, would it be lawful for a man or for a woman for there to be a divorce based on abuse or abandonment? And again, the answer is absolutely. Abandonment is simply the extreme breaking of provision. For instance, if a man leaves his wife and goes away, how is he able to provide for her needs? And an abuse is the extreme breaking of love, that instead of tenderness and care, you are physically abusive. And so this was the consensus, the understanding from Old Testament all the way up almost until Jesus. In fact, this was the view. In fact, according to this, these were the only three grounds and any other cause, any other reason someone might choose to divorce, the answer was No. It was not considered lawful. In fact, the Bible is uniformly clear outside of these, do not divorce. And that was the traditional rabbinic framework for understanding marriage, divorce, and remarriage until a couple decades before Jesus. Now, let me just pause there because some of you are kind of going, okay, wait a minute. I-, I hear this, but what about what about this thing like lifelong separation, Now, if you grew up in the church, you have heard this, and many in the church uh, believe that in some cases, the only right response to certain circumstances is lifelong separation. But with respect, that is because we do not understand the Jewish framework for the conversation Jesus has in Matthew 19. Here's the reality. Many in the church believe that if a man is unfaithful sexually, the wife is free to divorce. But if the man is beating his wife, she is not free to divorce. This is not biblical. In fact, you will not find anywhere in Scripture, anywhere in Scripture, where it is either allowed or commanded that a man or woman should just separate for life. Now, I know some of you Bible scholars, you're right now going through and you're going, wait a minute, what about that 1 Corinthians chapter 7 passage, verse 10 and 11, where Paul seems to say that a woman, if she separates from her husband, she can be separated, but she's got to do it for life and no remarriage. That word separate, again, is a euphemism describing divorce. Paul's not talking about what we think of as lifelong separation, in fact, there's only one place in all of Scripture that gives a permission to married couples to separate for a season, and that also is in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, I believe in verse 5, where Paul says, if you guys need some time to focus on prayer, you guys can separate for a season to pray, but then you come back together. So lifelong separation is not permitted or endorsed in Scripture. So let's come back to Jesus. The Old Testament, the three vows, the three grounds for divorce, what's going on? So the Pharisees ask Jesus, say, is it okay for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Why do they ask that? Well, there was this debate happening a couple, uh, a couple of decades before Jesus. There are these two rabbis, famous rabbis, one named Hillel. Everybody say Hillel. Good job. And there was another one named Shammai. Everybody say Shammai. Not Shamwal, you know, the, the, but Shemai, okay? Now, Hillel came up with a new way to understand the Deuteronomy 24 passage. He said that word indecent, a cause of sexual immorality, he said, well, what could be a cause? And he began to say, you know what? It could be anything that could cause that. So instead of it just being sexual unfaithfulness in Deuteronomy 24, I bet If the wife burns the toast, that could be a cause for divorce. And in fact, he came up with this whole list and came up with this new form of divorce called the any cause divorce. So for instance, if your wife wore her hair in a way you didn't like, you could divorce her. If your wife burnt the toast, you could divorce her there 's one guy, Rabbi Akiba, who said, "If you find another woman more attractive than your wife you could that 's a cause right there and then you know, like if your wife rents two consecutive chick flicks from Netflix, that could be a cause don 't i 'm not saying it 's a good cause, but this came to be known as the any cause divorce, and so when they 're asking jesus." is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason they are asking, are you a Shammai guy or a Hillel guy? That's what's being asked here. Is it okay? Now, interestingly enough, one drawback to the any cause divorce was that it was very, very expensive. If you could prove that your wife was guilty of breaking a vow like adultery, then you did not have to pay back what was called the ketubah. That was the... Marriage inheritance, the husband would receive that uh, inheritance. But if I get the any cause divorce because I don't like her cooking or something, then the husband had to pay back the ketubah. Now, quick question, family. In a me centered world, which kind of divorce do you think was more popular with the men? The any cause. I want out. I'm going to do whatever it takes and I'm gone. Did you know that there is an example of an any cause divorce considered in the Bible itself? In Matthew chapter 1, there's this young man named Joseph who is engaged to a young woman named Mary. And this is what happens in their story. This is Matthew 19. We are told because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, meaning prove that she had been adulterous when he found out that she was pregnant with Jesus, because he didn't want to expose her and prove that she'd been adulterous, he had in mind to divorce Her, and this is the key word, quietly. That's a technical word. It doesn't just refer to in general. This means that he was going to get an any-cause divorce. He would lose the ketubah. He would support the child. That's what's going on here. Now, when the Pharisees question Jesus about divorce, they're not asking Jesus, should we obey the Old Testament law? Their question to Jesus is this. Do you read Deuteronomy as a Hillel guy or a Shammai guy? And Jesus says, I'm with Shammai because he's with God. Because God, hear me now, if you haven't heard anything else, hear this. Because although there are ways to end a marriage, our God wants us to fight for our marriage, not run from our marriages. I'm with Shammai. So God provides a way to live in the real, but Jesus says this, you need to hold on to God's ideal. Now look at what Jesus says. We're going to kind of chase it home. Are you ready? Hang on. We're going to move fast. Notice what Jesus says after ask these questions. He says, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? And he says, haven't you read that at the beginning, at the beginning, Jesus says, you want to know God's ideal for marriage? Go back to the beginning. Don't look at a me-centered culture, a self-centered I-want-out culture. You go back to how God designed it. Hold on to God's ideal even when it's hard because in marriage, notice this, the two will become one flesh. They are no longer two but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let man not separate. Now notice why is it so important that husbands and wives fight for their marriages? It's because two have become one. There's a word in there that says they, they are united. That word literally means glued together. Let me just ask, have you ever used super glue before? Anyone used super glue before? How many of you have stuck parts of yourself to things using super glue and you didn't mean to? I tell you what, here's a real interesting thing to do today. Go home, if you're not sure how this works, notice that if you glue things together, you can separate them, but they will never look the same. Just take two pieces of paper, superglue it, let it dry, and then try to separate it. It will not separate exactly as it once was. There will be scars to the separation. God says, don't separate what God has put together because it's hard to un what God has made one. And notice what he says here. This little word, let. Let man not separate. He doesn't say man can't separate it because we separate things all the time that were not meant to be separated. He says, but don't let it. You fight for your marriage. Notice this. They then say, why then? Did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus replied, Moses permitted it. You say command, but you're misreading it. He didn't command it. He permitted it. Because your hearts were hard. But it was not this way from the beginning. In fact, notice, this story begins right here in Matthew 19.1. It says, after Jesus finished saying these things, what were those things? It turns out, in the previous section, Peter had just asked Jesus this really big question. Jesus, how many times must I forgive someone? Seven times? And Jesus is no! If you're a Jesus person, it's not seven times. It's not minimum requirements. It's not looking for an easy out. It's 70 times seven. Jesus people are forgiving people. Yes, listen, if you are in danger, you get your kids out. You get to a safe place. You call the appropriate people. You do what is wise. But God's word is not intended to be an easy out for Josh Diggs or for you. Christians fight for their marriage family. Even when someone is unfaithful, God's heart is for repentance and reconciliation. Divorce is never God's ideal. It may be the real, but it is not his idea. Now, here, a word of caution. If you've heard anything this morning that makes you kind of go inside, yippee, I got my out. And he just said I've got it out. Be careful. Be careful. Hard-hearted people look for an excuse to exit. Be careful if you are excited because you think you've got an out. Hard-hearted people look for an exit. But soft-hearted people soft-hearted people look For a way to stay. It may not be possible. But your goal is reconciliation. It is to join in. So you fight for your marriage. Like you would fight to keep from being ripped in two. You pray for your spouse. Forgive and ask for forgiveness. Get counsel. Don't walk. Run to help. Pray with some of our elders. Visit with a counselor. Get help. And if your spouse won't go, you go anyway. Because God can do amazing things through one person willing to submit to him in his way. Even if your spouse will not go, you just keep running after your marriage. You keep trying. You fight for your marriage because it matters. It matters, church, more than you and I can imagine. Because, listen, God does hate divorce. And I know you've heard that your whole life. And you go, oh, no. In fact, for some of you this morning... How many of you ever saw one of the Charlie Brown cartoons, maybe TV or movie? Any of you see Charlie Brown a- and the teacher in the school when she talks, what sound does she make? Wah, 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 Okay. That is the sound some of you have heard this entire morning after you heard we're talking about divorce. Everything else has just been wah, 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 because all you can feel is, oh no, that was me. And I didn't have a good reason. What what, what do I do now? And you have just this wash of guilt and this fear and this concern in your stomach and you go, oh no, oh no, what do I do? What do I do? Listen to me, some of you this morning, all you can hear when I'm sharing this with you is that little passage from Malachi where God says that he hates divorce and it is true he hates divorce but you may not know why he hates divorce. I want us this morning to just, as we come to a close, I want us to maybe meditate on this one passage from the Old Testament prophet Jeremiah. Because in the Old Testament and throughout Scripture, God defines His relationship with us using the picture of marriage, a husband and a wife coming together. And the primary image He uses for a breaking of that relationship is adultery, whether, whatever it may be. And so in Jeremiah chapter 3, the Lord says this. He says, I, God, gave faithless Israel her certificate of divorce. And God sent her away because of all her adulteries. Do you know why God hates divorce? It is because God himself is a divorcee. He knows what it's like to go through it. He knows the pain of someone who doesn't want to make it work, who is abusive or unfaithful or chooses to run away and abandon him. He knows what it's like. And this morning, if you are feeling guilt because you're going, I messed up and I did wrong and oh no, I don't know what to do. You need to hear the words of God who says, I know what you're going through because I've been through it as well. I've experienced the rending of a relationship. He hates it because he's been through it. And I know, I know if you've been through a divorce, the truth is if I could give you the microphone, you would say more than anyone else in here, I hate it too because I know what it does. And I know you would say you hate it because you would never want any of your children to go through the pain of divorce. I know you hate it. So the question is, is there life after divorce? Here's the good news. Are you ready for some good news, family? This would be a great moment for an oh yeah or an amen or if you want to go real Pentecostal, preach it, whatever. But here we go. Here's the good news. God Wants you to have a happily ever after. And because of his story, because of what he did and what he is doing, this is not the end. Jesus came and said, whatever your history is, now you can become a part of my family. Prostitutes or clean people, married or unmarried, single, divorced, rich, poor, Jew, Gentile, doesn't matter. I am doing something new and you get to be part of my family. People with all kinds of track records. He says, now I want you to find a place in my family. You are part of a bigger story because your hope, your hope, I hope this is the truth for you. Your hope is linked to the bigger story that began. Once upon a time, there was a God who created everything good. Once upon a time, he said, I love my creation and it's gorgeous. I made a house for my people. It's called the earth. And I put to task my people getting the house in order, and making it beautiful. Once upon a time, God had this idea, and he made it a reality. But then, things got bad. A woman ate the fruit, and a man ate the fruit. The curse came, and death came. And their marriage got messed up. Blame came, and divorce came. Polygamy, infidelity, cruelty, and abuse Children who were devastated came and everything got dark. Everyone's life got messed up by this. And we live in this curse, spiritually asleep, spiritually dead, decade after decade, century after century. Then one day, church, one day, another man came and he said, I'm starting a new family now. And everybody, listen to me, everybody gets to be forgiven in his family He says, I'm starting a family and everyone, it doesn't matter your past, it doesn't matter what you've done or what was done to you, you can come be part of my family. The God who divorced is now calling his old wife back, and he's saying, come home, baby. I'm starting something new. And so they killed him for it. And he knew they would. They hung this man on a cross. He bled and he died. He died. They laid him in a tomb and three days later he rose from the grave, family. This new movement started and hasn't stopped and it will not come to an end until not a prince but the prince, not charming but the prince of peace, comes with a trumpet blast and he says to his bride, let's go home and we will rally together around the Lamb's Feast. And in that moment, in that moment, he will say, your past doesn't matter for I have paid it all. I paid the bride price to get you back. Then we will all live happily ever after.